Hi, I'm Cindy Lauper. My scalp was covered with psoriasis. Felt like I was trapped between a rock and a hard place. Then I started Cosentix. Cosentix Secukinumab is prescribed for adults with moderate to severe black psoriasis, 300 milligram dose. Don't use if you're allergic to Cosentix. Before starting, get checked for TB. Serious allergic reactions, severe skin reactions that look like eczema, and an increased risk of infections, some fatal, have occurred. Cosentix may lower ability to fight infections, so tell your doctor if you have an infection or symptoms like fevers, sweats, chills, muscle aches, or cough, had a vaccine or plan to, or if IBD symptoms develop or worsen. Learn more at Cosentix.com or 1-844-COSENTIX. Cosentix works for me. Ask your doctor about Cosentix. Israel has given civilians in northern Gaza a deadline to evacuate 1.1 million people from that densely populated region and head south. That deadline expired four hours ago. As part of that notice, Israeli defense forces dropped leaflets across northern Gaza, warning civilians to evacuate immediately. However, all border crossings are presently closed, and the people of Gaza cannot leave the Gaza Strip. In response to Israel's order, the U.N. Secretary General's office released a statement saying the United Nations considers it impossible for such a movement to take place without devastating humanitarian consequences. Israel has rejected the U.N.'s plea and is continuing with its mission. Tonight, Israeli defense forces announced that they have made raids into Gaza territory to eliminate the threat of terrorist cells and to collect evidence that will aid in locating hostages. Hamas, meanwhile, has told Gaza residents to remain in place and called Israel's evacuation order psychological warfare. To give you some perspective here, the Gaza Strip is 25 miles long, about the length of a marathon. Residents of northern Gaza have been told to flee to the south of Wadi Gaza, which is about halfway down the territory. Now, Gaza residents who do choose to make the journey south will have to do so after surviving a four-day blockade by Israel, which has cut off access to food and fuel and water and electricity, while Israeli defense forces dropped more than 6,000 bombs on Gaza in the last eight days. Right now, the death toll in this conflict has reached more than 3,200. Israel reports that the number of Israelis who have lost their lives remains at 1,300, with another 3,300 wounded. And tonight, NBC News has obtained top-secret documents showing that Hamas intended to target Israeli elementary schools and a youth center as part of its brutal terror attack. The documents include detailed maps and show that Hamas intended to kill or take hostage civilians and school children. Meanwhile, the Palestinian Health Ministry reports that the number of Palestinians who have lost their lives is 1,900, with nearly 8,000 wounded. Today, Israeli Prime Minister Netanyahu gave a surprise address telling the Israeli public that, quote, our enemies have only started paying the price. Those comments come as U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken is traveling across the region to engage with Arab leaders. Right now, 500 to 600 American citizens are currently inside of Gaza. Today, Secretary Blinken met with Mahmoud Abbas, the president of the Palestinian Authority, which governs Palestinians in the West Bank. Secretary Blinken also met with leaders in Qatar, where he stressed the need to protect civilian life. As of right now, Hamas now claims that 13 of the Israeli hostages being held in Gaza have been killed by Israeli bombings. We continue to discuss with Israel the importance 
of taking every possible precaution to avoid harming civilians. We recognize that many Palestinian families in Gaza are suffering through no fault of their own, and that Palestinian civilians have lost their lives. We mourn the loss of every innocent life. Israeli, Palestinian, Jew, Christian, Muslim, as well as civilians of every faith and every nationality who've been killed. In contrast to those appeals, Israeli President Isaac Herzog told reporters yesterday that he believes civilians in Gaza bear responsibility for Hamas's attack on Israel. It's an entire nation out there that is responsible. It's not true. This rhetoric about civilians not not aware, not involved, it's absolutely not true. They could have risen up. They could have fought against that evil regime, which took over Gaza in a coup d'etat. Half of the civilians living in Gaza are children. Many injured children have already been taken to Gaza's largest hospital, Al-Shifa. But like most of the hospitals in Gaza, Al-Shifa is inside the zone that Israel has ordered evacuated. And that hospital is just two days away from running out of fuel. Sky News' Diana Magne filed this report from Al-Shifa today, and I want to warn you, as we have in the past, that this footage is disturbing and it involves children. A boy in Gaza's Shifa hospital, shaking like a tiny sparrow. No child should have to be broken like this, to suffer on both sides from a conflict they had no part in creating. But because the bombs keep falling, the patients keep flooding in. This is chaos, a confusion of stretchers, of injured everywhere that you look. And remember, when the generators stop under Israel's total blockade of electricity, of fuel, of water, this will get even worse. Hospitals in Gaza have already reached their breaking point. A spokesperson for the World Health Organization told Reuters, there are severely ill people whose injuries mean their only chance of survival is being on life support. Moving those people is a death sentence. Asking health workers to do so is beyond cruel. Joining me now is NBC News foreign correspondent Josh Letterman, live from Naharia, which is in Israel near the border with Lebanon. Josh, I wonder what you can tell me. I know you're moving around the country, but what you can tell me about, in in turn, the moving of uh, uh, folks inside Gaza and the mood along the border towns. Well, this is a country right now, Alex, that is holding its breath. Everyone seems to know uh, what is about to come. And the only question is, uh, when will this massive ground incursion begin? And frankly, how many people will lose their lives? Uh, There's not really any question about uh, what the scale is going to look like. Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu is saying the goal is to wipe Hamas off the face of the earth. And in a rare uh, Friday evening Sabbath address to the nation, uh, he really seems to be trying to uh, prepare the Israeli people for a fight that is not going to be a short-lived pinprick operation, uh, but something that is going to go on uh, for quite some time. And there's not any doubt that Hamas will retaliate for uh, an Israeli ground incursion. They have already been sending uh, rockets over the border into Israel uh, every single day. Uh, And the concern, of course, about this spiraling to other fronts up uh, in the area where I am at near the border with Lebanon. uh, We heard in Lebanon today from the leadership of Hezbollah, that other uh, militant group, saying, look, they're not going to sit this out either, that Hezbollah 
group leadership saying that they are contributing to uh, this Palestinian cause and that when the time is right, uh, they will act. And so towns up in this part of the country uh, are very much on edge. In fact, there was one town uh, that was put into a closed military zone, a town called Matula, not terribly far from where I'm at right now, uh, because of the threat there. In the West Bank, they are concerned about escalating violence. Uh, And of course, uh, in the Gaza Strip, uh, they know that what is coming uh, could lead to really mass disaster. For a lot of Palestinians, uh, this uh, evacuation over the last 24 hours uh, has really brought back some harrowing memories uh, from 1948, from when so many Palestinians during the war that led to Israel's creation uh, had to flee their homes. And so uh, you have Palestinians who are reflecting on once again having to leave their homes in a hurry, uh, but also with very little place to go, uh, wondering what the bloodshed is going to look like, even as foreign countries at this point are uh, urging Israel to reconsider this uh, evacuation. We've heard that from the UN. We've heard that from aid organizations uh, and uh, major questions about what will be within Israel's capacity to do to minimize civilian casualties while carrying out the very ambitious goal that they have set for themselves in a ground incursion into the Gaza Strip. Josh Letterman, thank you, Josh, for that report. Stay safe out there. I know we're going to be coming back to you soon. Appreciate the time. The pain and devastation of this conflict is being felt acutely across the region. This was a message we received today from Fadi Abu Shamala, the executive director of a Gazan volunteer organization. He is currently inside Gaza. Thousands of Palestinians from Gaza City and north of Gaza City are evacuating their homes. It's horrible. There's no taxes for these large numbers. I spent the, the morning and the evening, the, uh, the noon and the afternoon, and helping lots of friends for securing homes. Um, there is no enough homes here in, in the south of Gaza Strip. We are talking about 1.1 million of um, displaced um, uh, people. This is the expected number. Not the majority of the people of the uh, the north and Gaza City are not evacuating yet. There's no fuel. I'm running actually. I'm running out of my car fuel. It's horrible. People. Um, there's no much enough food. There's no much enough bread. It's horrible. Gaza will never die. We'll keep alive. Thank you so much. Joining me now is Eamon Mohadeen, host, of course, of Eamon on MSNBC, uh, a person who has covered the region extensively. Eamon, um, it's really hard. It's hard for us to hear those messages. It is unfathomable to imagine what what the folks who are being asked to leave their homes in Gaza are going through. Um, Hamas has been very clear. Do not leave. This is psychological warfare on the part of Israelis telling you to leave. How meaningful is that message from Hamas to the people of Gaza? Um, I think it's very meaningful for two reasons. What Josh was saying, I think there's a tactical aspect to it, and I think there is a principled aspect to it. And I I would be very susceptible, very, very suspicious, if you will, of just simply 
saying Hamas doesn't want them to leave without trying to understand a deeper psychology of Palestinian trauma. As Josh was saying, Palestinians have fled their homes as a result of war in 1948 and 1967. 60 to 70 percent of the people that are living in Gaza are refugees or the descendants of refugees. So the idea of leaving your home is deeply embedded in Palestinian trauma. The idea of leaving Gaza and resettling in Egypt, or as some suggested, going to Jordan or going to somewhere else in the or Middle East. Or just south. Or going south or to the desert. Or why don't they just go to Saudi Arabia? Why doesn't Saudi Arabia take them in? There's two reasons for that. One, because the trauma of not being able to return to their homes in the first place is so deeply ingrained in them, the idea of leaving again as a result of war seems very unlikely. But two, the way the international community has dealt with the Palestinian refugee issue in Lebanon, in Jordan, and elsewhere has also been proof for the governments in the region that if you take in Palestinian refugees, you are on your own. That's not to say that the governments have not done well uh, in treating them. They haven't. They failed them. They haven't given them citizenship. They haven't ever recognized them. They've always been treated as second-class citizens in these countries. But the truth is, these governments know that if they take in Palestinian refugees, they will always be on their own. They will not get the money they need. They will not be allowed to be treated the way that they should be. And they see what happened with Syrian refugees in the war there, in the civil war there, in places like Turkey and Lebanon. So it's part of the reason why a government like Egypt is so reluctant to suddenly just open the border and have hundreds of thousands of Palestinians coming across. And yet the bombs are falling, right? I mean, I understand the sort of context here and the psychological warfare part of this, the generations of trauma relating to displacement. There is also the tactical consideration, right? The strategic consideration of how am I going to survive till Monday? And the bombing campaign has been relentless. The ground invasion is imminent. There are people who are, despite Hamas's directive, choosing to move. Absolutely. You have lived in Gaza. You understand how densely populated it is. We use the... um, we tried to give people a sense of how small this strip of land is. It's, yeah. it's the length of a marathon. Yeah. And you're asking 1.1 million people to move from one part of the first half of the marathon, if you will, to the second half of the marathon. There's not a lot of room. There's no place to really go, is there? No place to go. Um, and also, look, I'm not a military expert, but if Hamas's uh, <clears throat> tactic and the Israeli military's tactic is to clear out these areas in order to come into confrontation to destroy Hamas as their stated military objective is, I suspect Hamas is not just going to stay in the northern part of the Gaza Strip while the civilians move north. I think given their history, they will move with the population to the south, vacate these areas so the Israeli military comes in and then turn around and move back up north if the Israeli military shifts its attention to the southern part of the Gaza Strip. Because the tactic of Hamas, which is what I was alluding to in the first uh, part of my question, which is they want to be embedded in the middle of the urban centers because that's where the fighting takes place and that's where it works to their advantage, where the tunnels are, where they can be in buildings, where they can move quickly in between alleyways and streets. So the idea that somehow they would just kind of stay in the city while the civilians flee and then not return or just stay there is, it seems tactically not like the way Hamas operates. So I'm not sure at this stage, and I, and I'm saying like full disclosure, I'm not sure what the clear military objective is right now from the military, the Israeli military, because like I said, if they go into these urban centers and, and want to destroy the buildings and destroy the tunnels, they have done that. But they haven't necessarily destroyed the organization 
of Hamas. They've destroyed their capabilities, perhaps, and warehouses and munition storage, but the leadership will still be there. The organization will still be there. And if they ultimately leave Gaza in a couple of months from now, then Hamas will return and rebuild as we've seen them do time and time. Well, again. and and I think one of the more enlightening conversations I had this week was with you talking about the, the, the way in which Hamas is an ideology that lives on independent right. of the actual formal organization. When you talk about routing out Hamas, there's a question of whether there can be munitions that bomb the tunnels right. that can be guided to minimize civilian deaths, the ways in which you can decapitate Hamas by getting rid of its leadership. But it seems like, and you know this better than I do, that Hamas is sort of cellular. It works in smaller units. It sounds like this attack may have been planned on a, in a multifaceted front. It's not as easy as just going down the command structure and picking people off one by one. No, you're absolutely right. And perhaps some of the the, the best evidence to support that was when uh, Hamas held Gilad Shalit, uh, the Israeli soldier that was held captive for five years and then ultimately released in a prisoner exchange, very, very, very few Hamas people or operatives or commanders knew where he was at any given moment. And that's how they were able to keep him out of Israeli reach and Israeli intelligence for several years. Look, I think most Western intelligence agencies will admit that Hamas, Israel has some of, if not the best intelligence capabilities, putting aside what happened in this attack, but they have deeply infiltrated many of these organizations. And as I've said before, they've been very successful in going after some of their most senior uh, figures and commanders. But the ability of Hamas to operate on a small unit level is what has made them also very resilient. Sometimes they don't even know within the organization how and who is in charge of which unit and which responsibility. And so the tactics remain very decentralized, even though there is a command and control structure, but it makes it very difficult. And we even saw that in a phase when Hamas was growing its rocket capabilities when I was in Gaza in, in and around 2008 through 2010, because they were able at the time to really have um, the, the rocket battalions or the rocket groups, the, the, the militants that were firing these rockets, very decentralized, sometimes in the back of pickup trucks. And you wouldn't know who was responsible for which um, capability at any given moment. Yeah, well, that seems to be sort of the secret as part of this attack, right. to do it in plain sight with tools that are readily yeah. available. Whether Guerrilla warfare, as many military experts on this network have described, guerrilla warfare in a very densely urban area um, if favors as we've learned from our own military experiences in cities like Fallujah and Iraq and elsewhere, um, it favors the, the militants and the insurgents in whatever field you're in. Amen. You are a invaluable resource in all of this. So um, come back and join me in the next hour if you, we'll if you would. Amen Mohadeen, thank you, my friend. We have lots more to get to tonight, including concerns that the escalating bloodshed in Gaza could spread beyond Israel's border. We're going to have a report from the border with Lebanon later this hour. But first, new reporting that CIA reports, in turn, warned of potential violence by Hamas just days before their attack on Israel. Former CIA Director John Brennan joins me on that right after the break. Stay with us. Hi, I'm Cindy Lauper. My scalp was covered with psoriasis. Felt like I was trapped between a rock and a hard place. Then I started Cosentix. 
Procentix Secukinumab Mab is prescribed for adults with moderate to severe black psoriasis 300 milligram dose. Don't use if you're allergic to Cosentix. Before starting, get checked for TB. Serious allergic reactions, severe skin reactions that look like eczema, and an increased risk of infections, some fatal, have occurred. Cosentix may lower ability to fight infections, so tell your doctor if you have an infection or symptoms like fevers, sweats, chills, muscle aches, or cough, had a vaccine or plan to, or if IBD symptoms develop or worsen. Learn more at Cosentix.com or 1-844-COSENTIX. Cosentix works for me. Ask your doctor about Cosentix. Caesars Sportsbook is the only sportsbook app with Caesars rewards. That means win or lose, every bet brings you closer to the types of perks only Caesars can offer. Like hotel stays at over 50 iconic destinations, bonus bets, daily profit boosts, tickets to the game, dining, and so much more. Whether you're a new or existing customer, Caesars Sportsbook is always rewarding. Must be 21. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Caesars Sportsbook. Don't just spectate, participate. Nearly a week after Hamas's attack on Israel, there are many questions about how and why Israel did not see such a large-scale attack on the horizon. Israel, after all, has a vaunted reputation for its ability to gather intelligence on possible threats, not only within its country, but also outside of it. And yet somehow its security apparatus was unable to detect an attack that Hamas claims 3,000 of its fighters were involved with including 15, another 1,500 serving as backups. That is nearly 4,500 fighters, according to Hamas. We are also learning that the U.S. may have had some indication of possible violence. The New York Times reports that two intelligence reports issued days before Hamas's attack warned about a potential escalation in violence from the group. But the intel reports did not predict the specific and complex details of the brazen land, air, and sea assault. Joining me now is John Brenner, former CIA director and NBC national security and intelligence analyst. Director Brennan, thank you for being here. I'm eager to hear your thoughts on this New York Times reporting that the the CIA issued at least two reports uh, warning of the potential for violence. What do you make of that? Well, Alex, obviously, I don't know anything about the CIA report, but uh, frequently U.S. intelligence will pick up indicators that something may be brewing. And that might have been the case here, that there were some indications that uh, Hamas was planning to carry out some type of operation. But as you pointed out, frequently these types of general warnings or sense do not have the specific details of the, the tactical operations that are being planned. It was very similar to before 9-11. The U.S. intelligence community and CIA had indications that al-Qaeda was planning something big, but we didn't know what, where, or when it would happen. And so, therefore, I think the Israelis missed some of these things, but also didn't take the, I guess, the prudent steps necessary in order to protect against something that might have happened, was going to happen. Uh, Can I ask what deliberations go into escalating a report like this, given the fact that it may have contained details that sounded familiar, given the ongoing skirmishes uh, between Hamas and the IDF? Sort of what are the flags for making this, you know, effectively bringing this up the chain of command to say we have an urgent report that you need to pay attention to. 
Well, it depends on the reliability and the access of the sources. Uh, but the U.S. and Israeli intelligence services have probably one of the closest relationships that exist worldwide. And any time that we in the intelligence community at CIA would have indications that Israeli citizens or interests were going to come under attack, we would do our very best to immediately share that information with our Israeli counterparts. And so whether it was coming from a human source or whether it was coming from some type of technical collection system, there really were no obstacles to our being able to share with the Israelis in order to give them a heads up so they could take the prudent measures to try to protect themselves. That's why when I look at that music festival that's taking place near Gaza, I was kind of very surprised that it wasn't augmented with very strong military forces, given that it was so close to Gaza. And if there were indications that Hamas was planning something, that would have been the type of measure to take, even if you don't know the different, the, the specific type of attack, but you want to do everything possible to protect those that might, in fact, be most vulnerable to some type of terrorist uh, operation. I want to ask your thoughts on something that's uh, provoked a lot of discussion. There's a lot of different reporting on it. But The Washington Post, The Wall Street Journal and The New York Times all suggest that Iran knew about this attack, but did not have the specifics. I'll read a quote from the New York Times. Some people familiar with the operation said that a tight circle of leaders from Iran, Hezbollah and Hamas helped plan the attack starting over a year ago, trained militants and had advanced knowledge of it. Um, 4,500 fighters involved in this. We saw the breadth of the attack, the scale of it, the fact that it used land, sea and air. Do you, do you, does it make sense to you that Iran may have been involved in, in this on a training level at, at, at the very least? Well, certainly Iran provided Hamas with the necessary training, material support, munitions that enabled it to carry out this, this operation. And Iranians have been integrated with Hamas forces for a number of years in terms of, again, conducting this training. The question is whether or not Iran, the Iranian government in Tehran, was aware of this and was a participant in any way of the decision-making process. At least according to the intelligence reports that are coming out, it doesn't appear as though they have found that type of intelligence that indicates the Iranian government itself. But there could be members of the Al-Quds force of, in Iran, the, the Iranian Revolutionary Guard forces that may have been inside of Gaza participating in this. So Iran, just like Hamas, they're not monoliths. They are very large, complex organizations. And so I wouldn't doubt for a moment that some Iranians were involved in the, the planning uh, of this operation and may have been uh, very much aware of this operation before it took place. Can I, well, one more question for you about the, the hostages. And the NBC News is reporting that before Israel launches its ground invasion, there may be some back-channel negotiations happening uh, brokered by Qatar or another Arab state to release some of these hostages prior to troops coming in. Um your thoughts on the likelihood of that and the likelihood of success? Well, Qatar or Egypt would probably be the most likely Arab states involved in any type of negotiations with Hamas. And I'm sure the Israelis are going to pursue any avenue that might lead to the release of these hostages safely and securely. But I think at this point, uh, Israel is not in the mood to turn over any of the Hamas prisoners that it has. But I do think it's important to try to establish some types of lines of communication with Hamas, those who are holding the hostages, to see whether or not there's any chance whatsoever of getting them out. Uh, and Qatar and Egypt, again, are the ones that probably have the best contacts with Hamas, the organization. 
Former CIA Director John Brennan, so um, helpful hearing your thoughts about all of this, this ongoing situation. Really appreciate your time tonight, sir. Thank you. Thanks, Alice. Coming up, we are going to have a report from Israel's northern border with Lebanon, where concerns are growing about a second front in the ongoing war. That's next. I'm Cindy Lauper. My psoriasis was all over, even on my scalp, which may mean four times the risk for psoriatic arthritis. But Cosentix works on both. Cosentix secukinumab is prescribed for adults with moderate to severe plaque psoriasis 300 milligram dose and adults with active psoriatic arthritis 150 milligram dose. Don't use if you're allergic to Cosentix. Before starting, get checked for TB. Serious allergic reactions, severe skin reactions that look like eczema, and an increased risk of infections, some fatal, have occurred. Cosentix may lower ability to fight infections, so tell your doctor if you have an infection or symptoms like fevers, sweats, chills, muscle aches, or cough, had a vaccine or plan to, or if IBD symptoms develop or worsen. Learn more at Cosentix.com or one Cosentix. Ask your doctor about Cosentix. Caesars Sportsbook is the only sportsbook app with Caesars rewards. That means win or lose, every bet brings you closer to the types of perks only Caesars can offer. Like hotel stays at over 50 iconic destinations, bonus bets, daily profit boosts, tickets to the game, dining, and so much more. Whether you're a new or existing customer, Caesars Sportsbook is always rewarding. Must be 21. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Caesars Sportsbook. Don't just spectate, participate. As all eyes are focused on the worsening humanitarian crisis in Gaza, concerns are ha- we have there are new concerns that the conflict could extend beyond Israel's border, including its northern border with Lebanon, and those concerns are growing by the minute. Today, the IDF said it fired at terrorist targets belonging to Hezbollah following a series of skirmishes between that group and Israeli defense forces. Hezbollah said it is, quote, prepared and ready to join its ally Hamas in the war against Israel when the time is right. In Lebanon's capital, Beirut, Iran's foreign minister met with Hezbollah's leader reportedly to discuss that war in Israel. And for more on that, we have MSNBC foreign correspondent Matt Bradley, who filed this report earlier on the ground in southern Lebanon. You know, my team and I spent several hours right along that border between Lebanon and Israel today. And while we weren't in the same place where that Reuters journalist was killed, we did see quite a lot of action. We saw rockets being fired from Lebanon into Israel. And in one case, we saw anti-air technology by the Israelis shooting down at least one of those rockets. And it caused an hours-long forest fire. Now, this was a horrific situation for this journalist. Two of his colleagues were injured as well. And it's just deeply saddening for all of us here in the journalistic community. But the fact is, we don't know exactly what happened yet. Reuters says they're going to be launching an investigation. Hezbollah issued a statement attributing his death to Israeli missiles. But still, we don't know exactly what caused this. There is a fog of war around all this, but it just goes to show that journalists in the region are in great danger as this border right behind me becomes hotter and hotter by the day. And it raises the threat that Hezbollah, the dominant paramilitary power in this region, could, in the next couple days or weeks, enter into the war alongside Hamas. Like Hamas, it is a militant group that is backed by Iran, and it seems as though they are waiting for some sort of signal, either from Iran or from their own leadership, on whether or not to finally enter the war. A lot of this could be up to the Israelis, because the people that we've been speaking to 
they seem to think that Hezbollah might be holding back as a kind of deterrent to kind of prevent the Israelis from going in and completely ripping Hamas apart in the Gaza Strip. Now, it's unclear exactly what is figuring into Hezbollah's decision-making process. But regardless, if they decide to enter into the war, that would be devastating, both for the Israelis, whose military would be split, and for the people of Lebanon, who are definitely so weary of war and economic ruin. MSNBC foreign correspondent Matt Bradley with that report from Israel's northern border with Lebanon. When we come back, he disappeared a week ago after trying to fight off Hamas terrorists attacking his community. We will talk to his father coming up next. On Saturday, when Hamas terrorists launched an armed incursion into Israeli territory, they headed for the kibbutzim. These are small communities, often agricultural ones, that are spread throughout Israel. One target was kibbutz near Oz, near the Gaza border. According to witnesses, Hamas terrorists burned homes, shot indiscriminately, and abducted whoever they could. Before the attack, the community had 400 residents. At the end of it, there were only 160 people left. Many of those who survived owe their lives to the men who fought the terrorists. One of them is Sagi Dekelhen, an American citizen who lived in Kibbutz Niroz with his pregnant wife and two small daughters. Sagi says his father had a lot of pet projects. One of them was going to the metal shop on Saturdays very early in the morning. But last week, on his way there, Sagi spotted Hamas militants, heavily armed, heading towards his community. Sagi turned around and alerted others. What followed was more than two hours of heavy fighting. Sagi and the other men tried to distract the terrorists by fighting them with whatever they had. Their hope was to gain time for the women and children to hide and for the Israeli army to arrive. But that did not happen until the late afternoon. And when they finally arrived, Sagi and many others, including children, were gone. Joining me now is Sagi's father, Professor Jonathan Dekelhen. Professor Dekelhen, thank you for being here tonight. We appreciate you sharing your thoughts. I know this is a very difficult time for you, and our our thoughts are with you. Um, can I first just ask what what sort of correspondence you've had with either the Israeli or American government about your son? Well, thank you for, for having me and bringing attention to the issue of the hostages. Uh, my son and um, at least 120, 130 more uh, Israelis. Um, we'll start from the bad news, and that is uh, I've had minimal contact with, uh, from any officials of the Israeli government. I think I can make that sort of fairly broad statement. Um, for for all of the missing people, and we have here and sort of our evacuation point in a lot, uh, dozens of families uh, of, of missing people, and I've heard almost nothing from the Israeli government about that. I am an American citizen, as is Sagi, and as of Tuesday afternoon or evening, perhaps we uh, I was contacted, and I believe the other families as well by the American embassy in Tel Aviv shortly thereafter, by the State Department, um, uh, 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 Secretary of State Blinken, I believe, on Thursday, uh, during his stopover uh, in Tel Aviv, 
invited all the families to uh, for a meeting. I could not make it because of the conditions that we currently are in the survivors from my kibbutz. But uh, yesterday, um, in the uh, morning hours, U.S. time, uh, the State Department had uh, a video conference, and uh, President Biden joined in for about, I would guess, 45 minutes. So contact has been substantial, the U.S. government, but information is is, um, fortunately lacking. The U.S. government says it's working very hard to get these hostages out, and yet we also know that an Israeli ground invasion of Gaza is imminent. I, I believe you have reason to believe your son is in Gaza. Uh, sort of, how are you reconciling the, the stated desire to get the hostages out and the acceptance on the part of U.S. and others that an, an Israeli ground invasion is forthcoming and could greatly complicate the picture of uh, re- relating to extraction? Yeah, well, <clears throat> you, you've come upon sort of the question or the dilemma for all uh, families that have missing uh, loved ones in Gaza. I don't have reason to believe I'm absolutely sure because of the circumstances which we could get into later on um, that all of the missing people are in Gaza along with many hundreds of captives uh, that were confirmed to be there uh, by way and saw a piece of it beforehand. Uh, before I came on, of uh, an abduction in in my kibbutz, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, of a young boy who I know very well uh, and whose family I know very well. And so um, we know that they're there, uh, yet uh, have not even gotten confirmation, of course, from, from Hamas. Your question about, it's not just ground invasion. I mean, we all see on the news that the Israeli army, um, uh, both through artillery, and uh, aerial assault uh, is inflicting enormous damage uh, in in Gaza, and you know, of course, with all the civilian casualties as well. Um, but two things can be true at once. I can oh, here only speak for myself. I desperately want my little boy, thirty-five year little boy, um, father of two beautiful granddaughters, and husband of a wonderful wife who's expecting. In another couple of months, I desperately want him home and reunited and fulfilling his dreams. At the same time, the events of Saturday morning have shown absolutely, and, and, and for anyone who had any doubt in Israel or abroad, that Hamas is a state terror organization. The 200 or so uh, terrorists who rampaged through my kibbutz, my home, about a mile and a half from the Gaza Strip. Uh, killed dozens and took captive dozens more and then destroyed my home and the homes of everyone on the kibbutz on their way out and looted everything. And that this is a regime, a dictatorial regime, that simply cannot be negotiated with and constitutes a, a absolutely clear and present danger, uh, an existential danger to all Israelis. So, you know, the, the perfect middle, of course, would be for Hamas to at least at least uh, recognize you know, that, that, that they or admit that they have these captives and what their physical condition would be. Um, even better would be release of, of these hostages and, and still missing people. Um, but both of these things are true. We, we are waiting for our sons, daughters, fathers, mothers, grandparents, uh, need to come home, 
but at least for me, also being a resident of that area, I've lived a mile and a half from Gaza for the last 32 years. Um, and we understand that there's there's no more putting this on um, because the alternative is mass murder and mass abduction by Hamas terrorists, not Palestinian people, by Hamas. I am so sorry that you have such an acute understanding of this horrible situation in a way that few others do. Um, we really sincerely appreciate you sharing your thoughts. Uh, please come back soon and keep us posted on the status of your son. We'll continue to think about him and all the others who've been abducted. Jonathan Dekelchen, father of an American citizen taken hostage by Hamas. Thank you so much for making the time tonight. Thank you for your concern. Stories like Jonathan's, stories of families being ripped apart across Israel and Gaza, they speak to exactly why Israel's war with Hamas is so deeply tragic. Civilians have and unfortunately may continue to bear the cost of this bloody conflict. Joining me now is Nathan Thrall. He is a Jewish-American journalist based in Jerusalem, and he's author of the new book, A Day in the Life of Abed Salama. Nathan, thank you for being here. Um, I, I've been reading some of the interviews you've been doing, and I, I'm so interested in your perspective on sort of the root of this as it concerns Hamas. Because on a certain level, one would assume Hamas would know that executing such a brutal, historically brutal attack on Israel would lead to a devastating response, a full throttle response from uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu. I wonder what you think the strategy is behind this and whether uh, Hamas believes that, in fact, a ground invasion was ultimately going to happen. I think that um, Hamas was surprised uh, by the uh, degree to which it um, uh, succeeded in carrying out the attack. Um, it, um, I think, was quite shocked at the speed with which it took over Israeli military bases and uh, communities and um, and the number of uh, captives that it got, I think, also exceeded all its expectations. Um, that said, the, the uh, nature of the attack that it planned uh, is, is unprecedented. And they had to know that Israel would respond in a way that it never uh, has contemplated doing before. And uh, what we're about to see probably as soon as the next few hours is is that uh, Israeli response that we've never seen before, uh, which is going to be a very bloody and very costly ground invasion. And we've already seen Israel has called on uh, over a million people to move from northern Gaza to southern Gaza. They're um, cutting off food, electricity and water to 2.1 million people who have absolutely nothing to do with the uh, Hamas attack. And they probably intend to reoccupy uh, parts of Gaza. And I think that Hamas absolutely planned for that to happen. They are planning to attack uh, Israel from uh, tunnels within Gaza. They're planning to abduct more Israeli soldiers that come into Gaza. And, um, you know, Hamas is not an, uh, a state army. It does not pose an existential threat to Israel. Uh, the Israeli army does pose an existential threat to Hamas. And um, Hamas has put at risk 
its territorial control of Gaza. And it may see that as a worthwhile risk if it stands to gain leadership of the Palestinian national movement and perhaps to eventually uh, come to power uh, over all the Palestinian uh, national movement and, and lead the PLO. But um, but it's uh, a tremendous uh, risk. And the people of Gaza are uh, now paying the price. Yeah, the, the idea that Hamas may try and use this to effectively seize control from Fatah, a more secular organization, seems to be the only... I mean, th that seems to be, if you look for a reason as to why they would try and do this, that would seem to be it. I do wonder if you think, if that is the case, whether, as The Atlantic writes, as The Atlantic uh, has a piece today called Israel is walking into a trap, whether, in fact, you know, Hamas is counting on Israel to attack Gaza with such ferocity that the international sympathy of the past week toward Israel, even in the Arab world, evaporates quickly and is replaced by outrage at the suffering inflicted on the two million residents of Gaza. I mean, is that sort of the inevitable path that we are heading down? Uh, absolutely. I mean, um, I don't think any uh, person can um, look at the images that we are already seeing from Gaza. I have a very close and dear colleague and friend uh, who lives there, who had shrapnel in his living room, who was separated from his daughter, couldn't find her. Um, he's now relocated in a, in a someone else's home with dozens of other uh, people uh, in southern Gaza. Um, anyone who looks at these images, the, the level of destruction, the raising of the most prosperous upscale area of Gaza City, Rimal, um, no one is going to look at the, the killing of, of people fleeing um, uh, northern Gaza to the south and not feel tremendous sympathy for uh, for them, for these innocent civilians. And of course, that's going to change uh, public opinion throughout the world. And then eventually we're going to see more forceful calls for a ceasefire. Right now, we don't even have the U.S. calling for a ceasefire. We don't even have the U.S. Uh, stopping Israel from collectively punishing 2.1 million innocent people by cutting off food, water and electricity to them. Um, it, it, the U.S. is complicit in a war crime right now. Uh, in the meantime, uh, it looks like that kind of the, the after effects of this ground invasion and certain bombing campaign may ultimately scuttle the normalization agreements that the U.S. was helping broker between Israel and Saudi, uh, Saudi Arabia, which is exactly what a country like Iran would like to see happen. And Iran, though it is inconclusive, may have been involved in planning this attack in the first place. There is a lot to untangle in all of this. Nathan Thrall, I really appreciate your time and expertise in trying to help us understand what's happening here. Thanks again. Thank you for having me. We will be right back with more continuing coverage of the Israel-Hamas Israel war. Don't go anywhere. Thank you at home for joining us as we continue our special coverage of the Israel-Hamas war. All day long, we have seen tanks full of Israeli troops headed toward the border with Gaza in response to deadly attacks on Israel last weekend launched by Hamas terrorist groups. 
Today, Israeli forces began what they are calling localized raids in border towns inside the Gaza Strip to clear out Hamas anti-tank forces and to look for signs of hostages. The IDF also confirmed today that they carried out 750 airstrikes in Gaza just last night. That is on top of the more than 6,000 bombs dropped in the six days prior. For context, that is more bombs than the United States dropped per year in Afghanistan. Afghanistan, And it unfortunately helps explain why the death toll in Gaza has risen dramatically with more than 1,900 killed. In Israel, the death toll from last weekend to tonight sits at 1,300. And tonight, NBC News has obtained chilling new details about how exactly Hamas terrorists chose their targets. Documents recovered from the bodies of Hamas fighters and obtained by NBC News from an Israeli official show how the group drew up detailed plans to storm specific schools and tasked special units to deal with the hostages. The documents contradict Hamas claims that the group does not target children. And they're part of an emerging picture of the scale and sophistication of the attack. About 500 children were killed in Israel this week. 614 children have been killed in Gaza. It is just an unimaginable amount of loss. And tonight there is a very live question about whether this already awful conflict is about to escalate dramatically. Israeli forces seem to be in position and ready for a full ground invasion of Gaza. Yesterday, Israel dropped these leaflets all around the densely populated northern half of the Gaza Strip. They read in Arabic, Gaza City has turned into a battlefield. You have to leave your homes immediately and head south of Wadi Gaza. For your safety, don't return to your homes until further notice from the Israeli Defense Forces. This is the Wadi Gaza line. It cuts Gaza in half. 1.1 million people live north of that line, and Israel essentially told them to leave their homes for who knows how long in 24 hours. For context, last year in the United States, the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development counted around 582,000 Americans experiencing homelessness. That is a number for an entire year. The mass displacement in Gaza would force nearly twice that number of people out of their homes in just 24 hours. It is more people than live in Austin or San Francisco or Seattle or Denver. The UN called this evacuation order impossible to carry out without devastating humanitarian consequences. Okay, we are going to come back with that sound a little bit later. For the Gazans that are fleeing, once they make it past the Wadi Gaza line, they are stuck there. Egypt has still not allowed Palestinians to cross their borders. U.S. officials estimate that about 500 to 600 Palestinian Americans are among those trapped in Gaza right now as well. A senior State Department official told The New York Times today that the U.S. is attempting to negotiate with Israeli and Egyptian officials for safe passage out of the country for those American citizens. Secretary of State Antony Blinken also said today that the U.S. is attempting to negotiate safe zones within Gaza for the fleeing Palestinians. And all of this is a race against time, with an Israeli ground invasion potentially just moments away. Joining me now is Josh Letterman, NBC News foreign correspondent. He joins us live from Naharia, Israel, near the border with Lebanon. Josh, thanks for being with us tonight. I know a lot of focus right now is on Gaza and Hamas and what is happening there. You are on the border with Lebanon, where 
the violence threatens to spill over. I know today there was apparently a Reuters cameraman who was killed in that area. Could you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, that's right. His name is Issam Abdallah, and he was part of a grouping uh, of journalists who had gathered uh, in an area near the Lebanese border with Israel where they were providing, uh, you know, we call it a live shot. They were providing a live video stream uh, of the area over the border uh, in anticipation of uh, some of these rockets that have been going back and forth and, and shelling uh, from Lebanon into Israel and from Israel into Lebanon. Uh, there were uh, more than half a dozen people who who were injured as well in that incident, including two Al Jazeera journalists. And this is one of those incidents, Alex, that really just hits home. That uh, area where he was killed is probably about 10 miles from where I'm standing uh, right now. And uh, it's an example of how in any kind of conflict like this, uh, you have people who are non-combatants, who did not uh, take an ideological stance or come with a certain uh, vendetta or political political goal who uh, inevitably get caught into this and end up either badly injured or losing their lives. And uh, the grim reality is we're going to see more and more of that going forward, particularly uh, if there is a prolonged war uh, between Israel and Hamas, potentially involving other militant groups like Hezbollah uh, in the coming days. Josh, what have you seen in terms of movements of what can you tell us in terms of move, movement of troops on the Israeli side and, and to in what directions they are going? I would assume most of the amassing is happening at the Gaza border. But what can you tell us about the fact that Israel is keeping its eyes on multiple fronts? They absolutely are. You're right. They are. I think the way I describe it is the Israeli military is digging in here in northern Israel uh, ahead of what they anticipate could be a second front uh, in this war. So they already have extensive uh, military assets in this region. They have a heavily fortified uh, border about six miles north of uh, where I am at. Uh, but we've seen them begin to up their preparation level. There's a village called uh, Matula here in northern Israel. Uh, that was evacuated, put into a closed military zone today. Nobody is being allowed uh, into there because they feel that the threat uh, is particularly high. And so uh, right now, even though the biggest focus is clearly on southern Israel and the area around the Gaza Strip, uh, Israel's military, particularly after a disastrous intelligence failure that has really revealed some shortcomings in the security apparatus here, wants to make sure they are not caught off guard a second time. And so we're seeing those kinds of preparations uh, for additional fronts opening up, not only here, but also along Israel's border with Syria and also uh, in the West Bank, where there has also been an escalation of violence uh, in the days since that terrorist attack on Saturday. Josh Letterman, thank you for that reporting, Josh. Uh, we will be back to you soon. Stay safe. The suffering we are seeing across this region is acute. We have been hearing from several people stuck in the blockaded Gaza Strip. Here is what literature and creative writing professor Rafait Alarir told us today. The situation in Gaza is complete and utter carnage. Israel has destroyed most infrastructure. People mostly either go to, to, to UNRWA schools, UNRWA schools, 
or they stay with relatives. And when they stay with relatives, they become a setting back to Israeli fire and missiles. So there's nowhere safe, no place safe, no one is safe. We're heading towards a complete disaster, some sort of starvation. And we, and sadly, we still expect the worst. Everybody in Gaza expects the worst. Joining us now is Ayman Mohadeen, my colleague and host of Ayman on MSNBC, who has spent years reporting from Gaza during the 24, including during the 2014 war. Ayman, thank you for being here um, and helping us all understand the dynamics. I want to talk a little bit about Hezbollah and Hamas and the dynamic between those two organizations and, and sort of what your expectation is as the ground invasion looms large and Hezbollah witnesses that unfolding. Yeah, there's a lot of similarities, but also some key fundamental differences. Um, there is a very important difference in how these two organizations have stated their objectives to be. And what I mean by that is they have both are they're both part of what is called the axis of resistance. And what is that? It's Iran. Um, it was at one point Syria when it was a little bit stronger, but certainly Hezbollah and Hamas. And it was those four that formed what they called the axis of resistance to Israel and Western imperialism in the region, so to speak. And that's how they kind of position themselves. But tactically, a little bit different than Hamas. Hezbollah is both a political movement and a military wing. Politically, it is part of the Lebanese government. And so when it makes decisions, it sees itself as part of a larger Lebanese society. And so its decisions to enter war are a lot different than, let's say, Hamas's willingness to enter the war. One of the lessons that Hezbollah learned in 2006 was that it attacked um, uh, Israel. It went into this deadly war. Lebanon paid the price for that war. Mm -hmm. Hezbollah came out, declared victory, of course. And certainly, by some standards, it was victorious that it was able to withstand the might of Israel for the 30-plus days that that war lasted. And because they were able to do that, they created what, what is often referred to as mutual deterrence. Mm -hmm. Hezbollah knows that it can... Uh, unleash a lot of firepower in Israel, and Israel knows that it can unleash a lot of firepower. And as a result of that, that border has relatively been calm uh, for the better part of 17 years. There have definitely been incidents, but no major wars like what we've seen play out with Hamas. Um, and, and just to, to button that up, there seems to be this kind of, uh, over the years, Hamas has learned from Hezbollah. And whether or not they have learned um, by actually working with them or just simply watching their tactics of acquiring rockets, um, having a diverse uh, capabilities in their arsenal between rockets, Navy, uh, special forces. They, they're trying to mimic themselves. And that's why a lot of people say, well, Iran obviously has fingerprints on both of these mm -hmm. groups um, and is able to provide what they did with Hezbollah more uh, recently to Hamas. I, I, I want to talk about tactics for a second, because to some degree, you know, there was a, a sort of strange relationship of a, a sort of utility that Hamas played for the government of Benjamin Netanyahu. And there was, at least it sounds like from the outside, an expectation that Hamas would not do something as barbaric, as brutal as the attack that it launched last weekend. I, I, I'm sure you've read about the news we have from NBC. Hamas has insisted it did not harm any children, but it, it seems apparent from the NBC reporting that very much part of the plan, according to pamphlets and effectively directions that were found on the bodies of Hamas terrorists, was a plan to attack elementary schools, to fi find children and hold them hostage, if not actually kill them. That seems like a—and and please, weigh in yeah. on that. This, th this seems like a dramatic 
increase in, in terms of the sheer terror Hamas is willing to inflict? Yes and no. I mean, and I say no because this is an organization that has carried suicide bombings sure. on buses and uh, attacked civilian targets in cafes and pizzerias. And so, so the idea that they haven't gone after civilians before is is just let's just be very clear about that. They have always gone after civilians, civilians in Israel with the nature and and with the suicide bombing. So, sure. So this tactic, though, of deliberately targeting the schools, as yes. is in this NBC reporting, um, I think it would be um, it, it would be very significant for them to have done that. And it's important to kind of like see exactly what Israel's providing in terms of the evidence. I know that we now have that reporting based on what the document that Israel gave us, mm -hmm. but it'll also be very interesting. And Hamas has released this video to say we didn't harm children. And they showed this like propaganda video of them taking care of some of the children on the inside. Yes. But the bodies and the victims tell the story. So, you know, that all of the people that were inside of Israel for those hours that unleashed this barbaric attack on the Israeli civilians, that's the story, right? Yeah. W whatever anyone tries to spin in and say, well, they didn't mean to or they didn't want to or that, that is just nonsense because the dead bodies of the Israeli civilians Tell the story. Themselves. When we talk about tactics, we have new reporting tonight. Um, the humanitarian group Human Rights Watch is accusing Israel of using white phosphorus that's based on videos recorded yeah. in Lebanon and Gaza. Uh, the IDF has denied this, saying the current accusation made against the IDF regarding the use of white phosphorus in Gaza is unequivocally false. Um, NBC News has not independent, independently verified Human Rights Watch's claims. But white phosphorus, for those who don't know, is... Um, considered especially dangerous to civilians because it burns through flesh. Now, Israel faced similar accusations in 2009. They vowed to stop using it in 2013. Um, you know the sort of saga of, of this substance and, and Israel's use of it uh, through the years. I wonder what you make of this numerous report. So I covered the 2008 war, as you mentioned, Operation Cast Lead, and Israel used white phosphorus and that. It was clear as day for every journalist that was there. We all saw it. We all filmed it. It was a very different uh, dynamic because there was foreign press there and people were able to actually record it. And it came out in subsequent reports and investigations that Israel had used white phosphorus. They have white phosphorus. They've used white phosphorus. As to this specific uh, account, I, I'm not there, so I can't verify it. But Human Rights Watch has a long history of documenting um, alleged Israeli crimes. And so it would not surprise me that, as we've seen in previous wars, that it had been used in this war. Um, as the former executive director of Human Rights Watch, Ken Roth, told me on, on my show earlier this week, the war crimes of one party in a war do not justify the war crimes of the other. And so whatever war crimes Hamas committed, which they certainly did in targeting civilians um, in their attack on mm -hmm. uh, Israel on Saturday, that is a war crime. That does not justify Israel uh, committing war crimes. And now with the white phosphorus allegation, with the collective punishment that is clear for the world to see that there are 2 million people deprived of electricity, deprived of food and water, unable to leave, that is a form of collective punishment under international law. Again, clear as day, considered to be um, a violation of international humanitarian law. So you are in a situation right now where both sides are committing war crimes and the people, the civilians on both sides are the ones that are suffering. Yeah. And in the last hour, we had uh, author Nathan Thrall on, yeah. and he was making the point that the U.S., by not publicly telling Israel not to invade uh, precipitously in moments from now, hours from now, days from now, we're not sure when, but soon, is in turn complicit in war crimes. 
Does it does it does it surprise you that I mean, the Biden administration, we're getting a lot of different reporting. The State Department is saying there has been no private urging of Israel to do anything publicly. They are saying Israel has to do basically what Israel has to do. Uh, we hope that they abide by the rules of, of the rules of war. That's what we do. That's what we expect them to do. But beyond that, this is an administration that has taken a very shoulder to shoulder stance with Israel in this hour, where understandably Israelis are grieving. It is a heinous attack, the worst potentially in the country's history. So I guess I wonder, do you think that the ground invasion could imminently change that calculation for well, other nations? The notion that American government officials or Western government officials simply tell Israel, follow the rules of law, and then they do is quite honestly, just a fallacy. And let's be very clear about that. America says it follows rules of law, uh, rules of war. And we saw what happened in yes. Fallujah and Haditha. We know what happens in Guantanamo Bay. We know what happens in Abu Ghraib. So it's not as simple as just simply saying, oh, we expect them to follow the rules of war and international and, and countries do it. That's just not the reality. When you have European uh, officials, uh, specifically British officials, incapable of saying or unwilling to say that the forced uh, displacement of a million people to leave within a span of hours is a violation of international law or not. When you have international organizations on the ground saying that is impossible, this is a violation, um, it, it makes the reality ambiguous. Um, and that is very uh, troubling. When you don't speak with clarity about what is international law, then you can't turn around and expect people to follow international law. You can't turn around and expect countries and um, participants in war to be clear about what international law is going to be applied here and which ones are going to be violated. And that's, that's part of the fundamental problem. I think Palestinians look at UN Security Council resolutions about the occupied territories having been neglected for years, not enforced, and, get, and Israel gets away with occupation settlements. International law is neglected all of the time in this conflict, and that has been a major source of, uh, of the problem. And honestly, it kind of weakens the international rules-based system, because Russia then exploits it in its invasion of well, Ukraine right. and other countries say, well, the international law was violated here. They can get away with it in, uh, in what they're doing in, in elsewhere, like places like Ukraine and what have you. There is so much embedded uh, scar tissue and trauma yeah, and precedent so in all of this. It's very complex. It's incredibly complex. It is, um, I want to say, it's a, it's a fine balance to try and calibrate, uh, you know, you can't calibrate how to do this. This yeah. is terra incognito. And we're now uh, in uncharted waters we with, are with in, the scope of this attack. Absolutely. Uh, the brutality of it uh, is is unprecedented. Yeah. But the retaliation is, well, we are looking down the barrel of something very, very dire. Yeah. Uh, Eamon and my friend, thank you so much for your time and thoughts and wisdom, as always. Um, coming up, a look at the Biden administration's diplomatic efforts in the region as the White House seeks to bring U.S. hostages home. That is next. To those holding American hostages in Gaza, you say what? I say we're going to do everything in our power to find them, everything in our power. And uh, I'm not going to go into the detail of that, but there's, uh, we're working like hell on it. That was President Biden in an interview with CBS discussing U.S. efforts to free American citizens being held hostage by Hamas militants. At this hour, his top envoy, Secretary of State Antony Blinken, is in Bahrain, one of seven countries Blinken is visiting on a major diplomatic tour of the Middle East as Israel prepares for a ground assault into Gaza. 
Secretary Blinken's first stop yesterday was Tel Aviv, where he stood with Prime Minister Netanyahu to publicly affirm the United States' support for Israel. The State Department has brushed back reports that the U.S. has urged Israel to delay its ground operation to allow Palestinians to secure safe passage out of northern Gaza, saying that Israel has the right to respond to attacks from Hamas as Israel deems necessary. But in private, White House officials are warning their Israeli counterparts to show restraint and to avoid mass civilian casualties and a humanitarian disaster that could turn world opinion against Israel. Joining us now is Hagar Shamali, former spokesperson for the U.S. mission to the United Nations. She is also a former Treasury spokesperson. Ms. Shamali, thank you for being here tonight. I, I wonder how you square these two sort of opposing pieces of reporting that obviously very publicly the U.S. is standing shoulder to shoulder, shoulder to Israel and being very deferential to Israel on the timing of this ground invasion, the scope of its um, retaliation. Privately, it sounds like it may be a slightly different story. Uh, What do you imagine is going on here? You know, it's not too different, actually, than when you had the last four rounds. You've had five rounds of violence in total between Israel and Gaza, Israel and Hamas, since Hamas took over in 2006. And every single time it's been pretty similar, where you've had a brutal response from the Israelis, and the United States has always stood by Israel and said, we will, we stand with Israel and their right to defend themselves. And then privately, there's always been advice and guidance saying, you know, listen, it doesn't help your cause if you have mass civilian casualties. It absolutely harms world opinion. I don't think that even with a brutal response and a high civilian death a death count, that it will change opinion in Washington, D.C. I think it will change opinion across the United States and against that type of behavior. It's a very difficult situation here. And the reason is that Israel has to achieve four things. They have to defend themselves. Mm-hmm. They have to deter future attack. Yep. They have to completely disable Hamas's ability to attack them, and they have to save hostages. It is a Herculean task. And so that's why the U.S. is very careful in saying, hey, you are, we stand with you. You have the ability to defend yourself, but please, in private, don't do this. And that's why I think there's this very heavy emphasis on the humanitarian corridor. They're trying to be creative. That has never happened before. That's the first time the U.S. has led that charge and said, please do this humanitarian corridor. Well, one would think that there for, there should be first times in this, given the first time nature of all of this, the brutality of the attacks, of course, against the Israelis that demand a response from Israel. But, you know, we spent we've spent some time in this hour and the last detailing the dire situation in Gaza for children who are on life support in hospitals, right? This is the scale, 6,000 bombs in the course of a week, uh, you know, shutting off uh, electricity, food, water to of an already impoverished part of the world. And then launching a ground invasion is unlike anything that Israel has done in recent memory as far as it concerns Gaza. I'm surprised that the Biden administration's response is effectively still what it has been in previous skirmishes, if you will. And I wonder if you think that there is real trepidation inside the White House about this going very, very badly and turning, as it would seem Hamas is betting, world opinion against Israel in a moment when it it could be the very opposite. You know, I, I was not surprised that this was the that this was the route that they took. That they said, you know, we stand with Israel. And we just and because of the traditional it, alliance. You know, the talking points. Even if you look at talking points alone, for the past three, four decades, the talking points regarding Israel have always been the same, and they require an update. I'm not saying they don't. Um, we all used to say that when I worked under the Obama administration. We all knew they needed to be updated. All of us Obama folks continue to say the same thing, but. 
And, and now this has happened. And so it doesn't surprise me when I saw the same talking points coming out. It didn't surprise me because, listen, we're running into an election year. Israel is a hot button issue. Yep. Um, right. Donald Trump tries to use that to his advantage. I think it's disgusting how he's politicized this. But we could talk about that another time. So it, that doesn't surprise me. Now is not the time. The, the Biden administration is not going to do that because they've got this election and so on. But also because of the nature of how this war started. Yes, of this course. This wasn't just missiles. It was this brutal terrorist attack. And we all have to remember after 9-11 how we felt. Now, I don't want to say or make it seem like I'm justifying revenge in any way, shape or form. And that's why I think there's the the difference I see in Israel saying you've got 24 hours to get these civilians out. It's impossible, but they never said that before. The fact that the U.S. is pressing Egypt and Israel to to work on a humanitarian corridor. That's first. Clearly, they're trying to be more creative to find a way to have their cake and eat it. To make make concessions to civilians, effectively. Mm -hmm. The other piece of this that you outlined in the four things that Israel has to do is release the hostages. The ground invasion would seem to complicate that in a way. Uh, I do wonder whether, you know, President Biden said uh, he posted a tweet. I believe it was earlier today about the 14 Americans who were unaccounted for. I assured them of my person, the families of those 14 Americans. I assured those families of my personal commitment to do everything possible to return them to their families. We won't stop until they're home. This is a very high risk scenario, of course, for the hostages, their families, for whom we cannot even imagine what this moment is like, and for the White House. Uh, the, the president is out there calling Prime Minister Netanyahu. He's speaking regularly. Uh, I wonder how much you think that that is something that they are going to have to work very closely with the Israelis on and and steer them in a direction that creates the best case scenario for getting those hostages home. Yeah, you have a mix of things that they're going to try to do. So first of all, this is a very, very challenging situation. Whenever you have any hostages, it's difficult. Yeah. Um, but first of all, you've got hostages with a terrorist group. This is not the same as a state actor. Yeah. So that's the first problem. Um, and already it's difficult with a state actor, as we know from Iran. Second is that it's in an active war zone. So anything could happen. They're going to be used as human shields. We already know that Hamas has said that if Israel targets any Gazan home before giving advance warning, that they're going to publicly execute these individuals. So it's very difficult. And the ground assault, I I can't say how successful that ground assault will be because I don't know. They haven't been in Gaza since 2005. Yeah. Obviously, Israeli intelligence knows how Gaza looks, but it is a maze. And Hamas had to have known that a brutal response would be coming. And so they likely have prepared for that. So all this to say, the U.S. is going to give technical assistance, intelligence assistance, whatever they can do to try to locate them to help Israel on the ground. But ultimately, there are inevitably probably going to be negotiations that, that will have to, will, will have to be there to get some of them released. The other thing I think is, it's important to flag is that this could take a very long time. Hostage negotiations, especially, you know, with groups like Hamas, they can take a very years, years and years. Um, this could be a very protracted period, could it not? Yes. And even usually when you've had previous rounds of violence, they've always been very short between Israel and Gaza. I mean, they usually last a matter of weeks. But Bibi himself came out and said that this would be protracted. And the, the hostages added a whole other complicating yeah. layer. Gilad Shalit, it took five years, the Israeli soldier. He was traded for um, a thousand Palestinian prisoners back in 2011 after he had been captive for five years. That's one, one hostage. You've got 150 here and it's, it's just, it's impossible. It's what I, what I would 
what I wish I could see is that if if Israel is able to put Hamas into submission somehow and get them to yield, then maybe you could see something. But the difference, again, you're dealing with a terrorist organization yeah. that does not care about its own population. They Quite don't obviously. care about Palestinians. So they're, you're, they're, they have nothing to lose. Hamas actively telling Palestinians to stay in place and that this is psychological warfare being uh, perpetrated by the Israelis. Hagar Shamali, thank you so much for your time and thoughts. Really, really appreciate it. Thank you. Coming up, as Israel amasses its forces near the border with Gaza ahead of an expected ground invasion, we will have a live report from the region. That's next. Joining us once again from Naharia, Israel, near the border with Lebanon, is NBC News foreign correspondent Josh Letterman. Josh, what is what can you tell us about the sort of domestic politics, how this is playing out for Prime Minister Netanyahu? Uh, what is his support among the Israeli people look like right now in the both the wake of the attack and in the run up to this presumed ground invasion? Well, in the run-up to this attack uh, nearly a week ago, uh, Alex, President, uh, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu was already clearly in hot water, facing corruption charges, uh, eight months of massive protests. But uh, that has really shifted quite dramatically, given that his government is now being widely blamed for massive security and intelligence failures that led uh, to this attack being able to occur. Uh, in fact, there was polling that came out from the Jerusalem Post uh, finding Israelis are overwhelmingly uh, blaming his government uh, for these attacks. And in fact, in the last few days here in Israel, we have seen that start to spill into public view in really stunning fashion. There have been several of Netanyahu's cabinet ministers who have been essentially chased out of public events, in some cases out of visits to hospitals to see the wounded, uh, by everyday Israeli citizens saying, you did this. This is your responsibility. Leave here. We don't want to see you. We blame your incompetence for this. Now, part of that, of course, has to do with the perception that Netanyahu's government was so focused on his controversial domestic agenda, that judicial overhaul that we spent so long talking about, that it took the eye off the ball of its security threats. But the flip side of this, Alex, is you have a lot of Israelis who say, yes, there needs to be accountability for what went wrong here. But maybe Maybe now is not the right time to do that. I've spoken with leaders in the protest movement who couldn't be any more anti-Netanyahu, who say, we still think that this guy is a terrible prime minister, but we're at war right now. We need to win that war. And as soon as we have won that war, then it'll be time uh, to look at what comes next for Netanyahu and this government. And so you have a lot of Israeli citizens who are really wrestling right now with the question of whether they can hold off on accountability. Uh, for uh, the failures that led to this incident uh, until after they deal with this immediate uh, crisis, uh, a major security threat to the existence uh, of Israel, uh, and some serious questions uh, about what will come next for Netanyahu's government, whether he can actually survive this politically. We saw Netanyahu declare this unity government, bringing in Benny Gantz, one of his chief political rivals, uh, into the government with him, uh, trying to sort of paper over uh, some of those uh, differences. But so far, we're not seeing that rally behind the flag effect that we've seen in other uh, tragedies in the past after 9-11, when former President George W. Bush's uh, popularity surged to about 90 percent. So far, the polling is suggesting uh, that Netanyahu has taken a major hit as a result of the events of the last week, Alex. 
Josh Letterman, thank you for your time and great reporting tonight, Josh. Stay safe. We will be back to you soon. When we come back, families of Israelis taken hostage by Hamas speak out about their fears and their hopes. That is next. The Israeli government has officially notified that uh, notified 120 families that their loved ones are being held hostage by Hamas terrorists inside Gaza. Hamas, meanwhile, is claiming that 13 of their hostages have died as a result of Israeli missile strikes. Since the brutal and horrific Hamas attacks nearly one week ago, many Israeli families are doing everything they can to spread the word about their loved ones held hostage, to showcase their humanity and to hold out hope for their safe return. Here are some of their stories. My name is Yoni Asher. I'm a father whose whole family got kidnapped. Wife and two young baby girls, Raz, less than five-year-old, Aviv, less than three-year-old. Just take a look. Those, these two young baby girls of mine, my whole family got kidnapped. I don't have another babies. I have only one wife. This is my whole family. And they got taken away from me. And my kibbutz had 400 people. 80 people were kidnapped into Gaza. Children, babies, mothers, children without their mothers, elderly people. My kibbutz is, is ruined now. Nothing is left. Everyone, yes, sorry. Nowhere is safe. How can you live when you, when you feel and you know that there is no place safe for you? Look, uh, this is a situation that no one uh, prepares you to. We are trying to explain to the world, to post on social media anything we want. Uh, Aviatar's name will be, uh, will stay on, on everyone's mind. Actually, we're staying very positive. We are surrounded by a family and uh, by Aviatar's friend. Um, and I know, I know that soon I will get to hug him again and to, to hold him tight and, and never, never, never let him go. When we come back, 1.1 million people are under orders to evacuate northern Gaza, but many of them have nowhere to go and are remaining in harm's way. That is next. They throw paper, but most, most of the paper is broken like this. And, and look, they throw it in the air. The woman you just heard from is a resident of northern Gaza. We have agreed not to say her name publicly. She has been warned 
by the Israeli government to evacuate her home like 1.1 million others. She was given 24 hours to do so. That deadline has now passed, and no one is quite sure what happens next or when. But the expectation is that Israel will launch a massive air and ground offensive against Hamas soon. And many people in Gaza have nowhere to go. The borders to Israel and Egypt are closed. The shelters are at capacity. The streets have been destroyed by missiles. The hospitals are very nearly collapsed. And the woman we introduced you to, the one who does not want to say her name, she has decided to stay put. We didn't have car, and also they closed all the ways to move. We cannot move. So we will stay in home. I don't know what will happen. Joining me now is Iman Mohammed, an award-winning photojournalist from Gaza. Many of, of many of Iman's relatives and friends in Gaza are trapped there right now. Thank you so much for being here, Iman, as we try and under, better understand what's happening on the ground there. Uh, what was the last you heard from your relatives in Gaza? Thank you for having me. Um, the last thing was that they had absolutely no place to go and that... They will remain put um, in our apartment building in the center of Gaza City, uh, where they had no access to water, electricity, and very spotty uh, internet coverage. That was two days ago. Have you had any correspondence with them since? And, and what was their expectation about how they were going to survive the rest of the week? I mean, when you live in Gaza, you don't really have expectation. This is uh, not the first war, and therefore it's very unpredictable. And that's typically how Gazans um, make it through the war without having expectations, which sounds very insane, saying it out loud. But unfortunately, they don't really have a say in the matter. They just um, live with what they are being subjected to. And therefore, they just had to endure that kind of circumstances. And all I had to say is uh, words of comfort that I honestly did not believe myself. So they were just trying to say that maybe some sort of um, humanitarian organizations are going to interfere before it's going to be a bleak situation. And uh, all I know is that they had very little water left in the tanks and the electricity was completely cut off and they were relying on generators and that uh, the fuel been cut off on the city. So whatever was left was eventually going to run out. Um, the internet uh, was very, very spotty. So whenever they had internet where we were able to exchange messages, I was very conscious of the fact that they only had um, battery in their phones for the time that they were able to charge their phones whenever they had generators working. So it, it, it was all up in the air, really. And this is how it was in every a war that we lived together. So this was not going to be any different. 
You mentioned, I mean, you've said, and I think you covered the 2008, 2012, and 2014 Gaza war, and certainly a lot, there's a lot of commonality with those wars, but there's also a different scale to this one. And I wonder how, as a, as a photojournalist watching this unfold, albeit at a distance, how this is different from what you have covered previously. I, I cannot recognize Gaza anymore. So it's absolutely different. It's completely and entirely different. Before, it used to be mass destruction. It used to be uh, tremendous destruction, heartbreaking destruction. But this is nothing that I've ever seen. I don't recognize my city. I don't recognize anything. Anything from my childhood had been erased. I don't see... Um, the ice cream uh, famous place. I don't see the falafel and hummus place. I don't see restaurants. I don't see schools. I don't see hospitals. Um, I, I don't see anything. And honestly, I'm 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 not banking on seeing a lot much left. I'm only hoping that I see my family and that I um, hopefully. But uh, I'm I'm not really holding a lot of hope on that either to keep my home and my family's home. But I, I, I just the whole city had been erased. It's completely gone. The, the buildings that are left left and my um, my apartment building, the building where me and my family live, lived in, they still live there because we were neighbors is one of the few one of two or three apartment buildings in that neighborhood still standing which uh, mind-blowing to be honest because everything else had been erased so this is definitely different not to mention that the casualties are um a hundred percent for the past maybe three days um been roughly a hundred percent children and that's not something i've seen before yeah. i have i have not seen that ever before it is a, 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 va a large percentage of those casualties are indeed children. Uh, everything that is happening right now is unprecedented. Iman Mohammed, thank you for making time to speak with us about your experience and that of your family. Uh, we really appreciate it. Thank you. That does it for me this evening. Hi, I'm Cindy Lauper. My scalp was covered with psoriasis. Felt like I was trapped between a rock and a hard place. Then I started Cosentix. Cosentix Secukinumab is prescribed for adults with moderate to severe black psoriasis 300 milligram dose. Don't use if you're allergic to Cosentix. Before starting, get checked for TB. Serious allergic reactions, severe skin reactions that look like eczema, and an increased risk of infections, some fatal, have occurred. Cosentix may lower ability to fight infections, so tell your doctor if you have an infection or symptoms like fevers, sweats, chills, muscle aches, or cough, had a vaccine or plan to, or if IBD symptoms develop or worsen. Learn more at Cosentix.com or 1-844-COSENTIX. Cosentix works for me. Ask your doctor about Cosentix.